Now I'd like to invite you to think back to the last time you found something important and worth reading in your mailbox. Now I'm not talking about your inbox or your Facebook thing, whatever it is, but your letterbox. Usually we find bills, flyers about the newest property launch, that you need some upgrade, or some other upgrade that the marketing people think that you need. And just below that, you find an offer of a loan that says you can't afford it. Now you're tempted, but then just below that, you see another bill. Once in a while, though, you might get a handwritten letter addressed personally to you. What a joy. You know it's from someone who's taken the trouble to take out a pen, found some paper, and sat down thought through to pen his or her thoughts. Well, then you put a stamp and the person has posted it. Well, this one gets read first, isn't it? The rest goes under the armpit, you're walking up the stairs and you're carefully opening up the envelope as you go up. Some of us have had that pleasant experience, especially when you're down and need some encouragement. Someone's written to you to keep going. You probably uh, kept some of those just to read again. Or perhaps someone has noticed something in your life which needs changing. It's written to you to show that he cares. Or some of us may have received personal letters from friends who care. They're special, thoughtful, important. We're working steadily through the book of Revelation, for those who just joined us today, uh, these few months, and these two weeks we look at the letters to the seven churches. This week we'll only, only open two of the seven letters, and, well, you might think reading other people's mail is rude. In most instances it is. And you might also be thinking, why should I listen to what is being written here? After all, it's not addressed to me, it's not addressed to BTPC. Aren't we supposed to read things in context? Isn't it written a long time ago? They're not addressed to us or to our time. Or are they? I went in the first part to convince you that we are to listen to these letters. Yes, they were written to specific churches at a specific time, a long, long time ago, in a place far, far away. But this is not Star Wars fantasy. I want to show you that yes, we must understand them as it was meant to be understood at that time. But we are not Bible archaeologists. It's not just history and geography we are interested in. It's not for Bible quiz. We are meant to understand what it's saying to us right here today and to apply it. So the first question we need to answer is, why should we listen to the revelation to John? Why should we listen to these seven letters? You keep me to the number seven. I've got seven reasons phrased in seven questions we are to ask as we read these letters. As they're there on your outlines if you have them open. And please keep your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 2 and we'll be flipping back to chapter 1 just for a little bit. Well, first question, who is it from? Look at how every letter starts. To Ephesus, to this one, these are the words of him who then follows the description of Jesus. To Smyrna, 2 verse 8, these are the words of him who then follows the description of Jesus. This pattern continues to the seventh church, Laodicea, 3 verse 14. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. 
Well, we're going to start with an introduction to the author. Every church needs to be reminded just who Jesus is. This Jesus who speaks these words through his spirit, verse 7, written down by his servant John. We are not to think that they are merely human words, but that the author is the Lord Jesus himself. Now these introductions to the letters are snippets of the heavenly vision of the glorified Lord Jesus we see in chapter 1. The Son of Man who says, 1 verse 18, I am the first and the last, who died and is alive forevermore, reigning, ruling even over death and Hades. It is the risen Lord Jesus, glorified, who is speaking. Now I wonder if we're getting that vision of Jesus. Or perhaps we are so familiar with the Jesus of history that we are not convinced of the Jesus of the present and the future who speaks these words today. And if you are wondering why the whole chapter 1 is devoted to this vision of Jesus, well, it's because John needed to be convinced to have this vision of Jesus. You see, he knew the Jesus of history very well. He walked with him for three years. He saw him bleeding and dying on the cross. He stood there at the foot. He saw him raised to life three days again. And then he ascended to heaven. But it's been a few years. If we date it correctly, John is probably about 90 years old. And because of his work as a disciple, the hard work of his evangelism, he's landed in trouble. He's in exile on the island of Patmos, alone, under persecution. And he's probably thinking, where was Jesus now? He didn't know the Jesus who now reigns. He hasn't seen the heavenly throne room. Jesus just seems so distant. He's starting perhaps to think that maybe Jesus won't be coming back. Maybe all this suffering and hard work was for nothing. And so he needed this vision of Jesus, the glorified Christ. And so do we. We are so familiar with the Jews of history that we forget or overlook who it is that is writing these letters. And we do not fall on our knees before him. As John did in chapter 1 verse 17. If we don't get the picture there where Jesus says he is literally, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I am the one who holds the keys of death in Hades. As we sang just now, the great I am. We wouldn't take seriously what he has to say. The things that are, and the things that are to take place. We wouldn't take seriously the commands he issues us. And we wouldn't fear his threats, nor would we even be comforted by his promises. I wouldn't believe it when he says 2 verse 1, the seven stars, they are in my hand. Have you ever seen a person holding stars in his hands? I'm in control of whatever happens, whatever happens to the churches. And we wouldn't trust him when he promises paradise to the one who overcomes and endures to the end. Well, but if you do have this view of Jesus, if you have this view of Jesus, the glorious king and throne in heaven, well, then we could make the opposite mistake. We might start to think, there is Jesus in his ivory tower. Life's okay for you. He doesn't know what I'm going through here on earth. We sing along and say he's watching, just watching us 
from a distance. And from a distance, according to Bette Midler, there is harmony. Well, it couldn't be further from the truth, could it? Look at what Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds. Verse 3. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. I know, repeated in all the letters at the top, 2 verse 9, I know your tribulation, this manner. The letters all have the simple refrain, I know. Well, it brings us back again to remind us who it is that is writing these letters. Look at 2 verse 1 again. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. I know you all, says Jesus. I'm right here among you. So that means for those of us toiling hard at Sunday school right now, getting up early to prepare refreshments for church, cleaning up when everyone's gone, the Lord knows. Those of us standing up to false teaching and suffering for that, the Lord knows that you're enduring hardships for his name. So we get the picture of Jesus who is truly glorified and yet really involved. He's the hands-on founder of the company. He knows the works of his people. He knows their suffering. And yet he even knows their compromises. We'll get there in a minute. But yet this I have against you, let's not forget that, is there in 2 verse 4. He knows the compromises. And he cares That's why he's writing these letters. He commands us to do something about it now because he cares. Well, I wonder if that thought scares you or comforts you. I wouldn't know. I'm sure there are some here from either group. We should be concerned. We should want to listen in on these letters because Jesus is the glorified Christ in heaven and yet he is not too far away. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. We simply listen because he is and he knows. But is he really addressing us? You could argue it away and say, well, he's not really talking to us, he's talking to Ephesus. Well, second question then, who is it to? We've already noted last week that the number seven signifies completeness. So the seven churches in Asia Minor represent the churches everywhere in every time. Look at 2 verse 7 more closely and you will see that it is not meant just for that church in particular. See verse 7, the call is to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's addressed to Ephesus in verse 1. It is the Spirit saying this to the churches. And the repeated phrase in every one of these letters is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It is addressed to he who, or to anybody who has an ear. Well, look around us, look look in the mirror. That's you and I. These letters are for anybody, for all of us to hear. Therefore, the churches. Therefore, BDPC. Therefore, St. Paul's across the road. Therefore, St. Mary's in KL. Therefore, you and I. Because Jesus knows. He cares. And he wants us all to listen. So, let's open two of these letters together. One to the church most in trouble. And to the one 
least in trouble, as far as Christ is concerned. The letter to Ephesus and the letter to Smyrna. The first one then, Ephesus. Let's open that one together now. The risen Lord Jesus is well acquainted with the church in Ephesus. He's been observing them for some time. He says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, what do you make of that? We don't like it, but it's a bit of a report card, isn't it? Must be some time for some of us. Uh, it's like the end of term when your teacher hands out report cards in sealed envelopes to your parents. So you have to show it to them. Well, as we open this report card, how did Ephesus do? There's a commendation and a charge. Some things are good, but it's not, not all. It's not all good. So third point, what pleases Christ about this church? Well, three things. Three things they are commended for. They fulfill the church criteria in three ways. Enduring patiently the persecution. Tick. Discerning, holding on to truth. They are taken taken seriously Paul's warning in Acts 20 about fierce wolves coming in to devour the sheep. Have they done well? Yes. Tick. They hate immorality and they are holding on to purity, just as commanded in the, in, the, in the letters to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. Yes. Take. So far, so good. Some things are going well, Ephesus. Just one thing which is not so good. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. One thing to improve on. Or is it? Just how serious is that charge you have forsaken your first love? The question is, is Christ angry? What angers Christ about this church? Well, if I look at my report card, usually when I was very young, sometimes they look quite similar. Grades, straight A's. Conduct, F. But I still got through. So it can't be that bad, right? Maybe it was something like that. So it can't be that bad. Three out of four for Ephesus. I mean, compared to our friends in the other churches, we stand up for Jesus at work or in school. We are not fooled by the prosperity gospel. We say no to pornography, adultery, homosexuality, bad business practices. Not too bad, isn't it? Three out of four. Where everyone else seems to be failing. 75%, 75%, A1. Or was it? What is, what is it? Angus cries about this church. Listen to verse 4 again. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Friends, this is not a little blip or an aberration of the report card. This is not just an area to improve on slightly. 
The first love is not just a CCA or elective. It is the core subject. I think all levels are graded on L1 plus five other subjects. Fail L1. And that's the end. It's over. This is the core module. Fail this. And that's the end. Well, what could it be? What is this first love that they have forsaken? Most commentators think there are three possibilities. First of all, the love for Jesus. Well, alright, that's there. Definitely. But is it just some general feeling of love for Jesus? Which is in view here. Well, secondly, love for one another. Well, yes, perhaps they weren't being loving toward each other. It's a common problem in the New Testament churches. But is this what was in view there at Ephesus? Well, there's no hint of that in these verses. Or is it some general love which has grown cold? They've, they've simply lost that loving feeling. They've become cold hard heresy hunters. It's very likely when you're discerning and holding on to the truth and purity, you become a little dogged and aggressive. You become overly suspicious and a bit prickly. You become proud that you stand alone in these matters. Well, that's quite probable. So you lose that loving feeling towards everybody else. Well, I think there's a fourth possibility. Uh, the commentator G.K. Beale explains that there's this which makes sense of all the three above. You see, verse 4, you have forsaken your first love. It's not just some general feeling. Verse 5 is linked to that. The call is to do the things, the works you did at first. You see, forsaking their first love is closely tied in with the things they did at first. But what, 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 what were these things? Well, it can't be the patient endurance of standing against false teaching. Jesus is already commending them for that. What I think is this. It was the decline in vigorous outreach in evangelism that Jesus is pointing out. They lost that love to go out there with the message of salvation. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. They were once like that. Perhaps when they were a new church with a group of new believers looking for a permanent place to meet in, getting their relatives, their colleagues, their friends, anybody they knew or even didn't know, Old classmates, you probably had a version of Facebook where you can go and ping them or something. They were getting them along to the evangelistic talk so that they could be saved. And they loved that. Talking about Jesus to colleagues and classmates, partnering other Christians at the workplace to pray for non-believing friends, they loved doing that. Nothing was more fulfilling than getting people to know Jesus. It's the excitement of a new Christian who understands for the first time, as Paul puts it in the letter to the Ephesians, who understands the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of God's love. And that new Christian wants nothing but to do the Lord's work. He's to tell others about this wonderful Jesus and the extent of the love of God. Well, if you've met a new Christian recently, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <clears throat> there's one at the NIA Christian Union where I work in. Uh, she's a baby Christian, one year old. And she prays that her classmates get saved. She goes out with the gospel. She can't understand why her church-going classmates do not see it as their first priority in their short time there. The priority over their books, their assignments, and their grades. Well, it's easy to see what a first love is. 
Well, she loves attending Bible study. Don't, don't get me wrong. She loves doing that. But once in a while she says, may I be excused to go and talk to a friend about Jesus? Well, what's happened in Ephesus? They've forsaken their first love. They've become cold and hard and so inward looking that they have failed their core subject. They have failed to bring this gospel to others. Jesus himself had warned earlier in Matthew 24 verse 12, let me just read that, Matthew 24 verse 12, that the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. You see that? The close tie-in between love and proclaiming the gospel, the gospel which is carried by those whose love has not grown cold. Now don't get me wrong, of course we must be discerning and hold on to truth. If we do not defend the truth, there will be no gospel to preach. If we just partner anybody, right, and allow subtle heresy to seep in, maybe because it works, we'll forget the core doctrines of Christ. But if we don't preach the gospel, we become an end in ourselves and love dries up sooner than we think. We become overly suspicious of everybody else. We wouldn't partner anybody else who doesn't believe in the other things we believe in. I don't know, like, infants should be baptized, only hymns should be sung, we should all wear neckties. We start looking inwards, and soon we are fighting each other. I'm just coming from a camp two weeks ago where leaders from six different churches across a few denominations band together to reach young people with the gospel. It was a fun time, not completely without the bickering. But when we go out together to tell people about Jesus, we will stop bickering among ourselves about these things. We show the love for Jesus by telling others about Jesus. We show the love for one another because we are engaged in this task of evangelism. As hard as that may be, when we do what we love to do most, the hard work, the Lord's work of evangelism, we will show the love for Jesus and love for one another. The Beatles got it right when they said, all you need is love. The love to go out there to reach others for Jesus. Or maybe the church is saying, or Jesus is asking us today, where is the love? You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. So fifthly, what does Christ want this church to do? Well, we must bow down in thankfulness that Jesus does not end with just a charge against the church. He cares, and he wants this church to be alive again. He wants them to change, and he issues them a command, verse 5. Repent, and do the things you did at first. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, go and think out of the box. Go and buy the newest cause material out there. Go and buy the nearest evangelism DVD. He wants the church to evangelize vigorously, but the command is not to think of new ways or to go to some revival rally. First, he says, recognize the problem. You've forsaken your first love. Do the things you did at first. Rekindle that flame for me. Remember what you used to do. Do the works you did at first. Go and evangelize. That will make you 
rekindle the love. Can you see that? Well, have you have you lost the love to evangelize? How are you going to rekindle it? What fuels it? What fuels the love to evangelize? No, it's not the newest course in the market. It's not the Bible conference. But simply doing it. You've forsaken your first love. Do the things you did at first. And the more we tell the gospel, the more we give out, we give ourselves to the Lord's work, the more the Lord fuels it. He fills us. The more we go, the more we know and remember for ourselves the breadth, the depth, the length, the height of the love of God for our sinners saved by grace in Christ Jesus. The more we remember that, the more we'll do it. Because without doing the things we did at first, love dries up. When we forget the love of God, we forget how to gospel others. And when we forget how to gospel others, we will forget the God who loves us. Well, Jesus knows. He cares. And he wants them to remember their first love. So he wants them to repent and do the things you did at first. And because he cares, he issues a very strong caution. Well, what if they didn't repent? It's a very serious charge, you see. This angers, angered Christ so much that it's issued with a severe threat. It's no use watering it down. It is what it is. It's a threat. I will come to you to remove your lampstand. Now, Jesus is not telling us how to do a bit of interior decorating. He's not telling us how to change your feng shui. The, the lampstands are the churches of God. They were in danger of not being a church at all. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove a let your lampstand from its place. It's very serious. Again, this first love is not an option, it's not a CCA, it is a core subject. If you're still not convinced that this first love has to do with evangelism, look closely at the punishment. That the church is meant to be the light shining in the world. A lamp which is not meant to be covered, but for all to see. To be shining in the dark place. Even Paul, who founded the church in Ephesus, did this act of proclaiming the gospel for three years, night and day, it says. Even the Tim- Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, is commanded by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. There are lots of things to sort out, Tim. But you always do the work of an evangelist. The church did not listen. They did not do what their pastors did. They did not do what Jesus commands all disciples to do. So why should a church, which does not shine the gospel light in the world, remain a lamp? Why should a church which does not do what it's meant to do, which does not share the mission of the Father, continue? Why should a church whose heart does not beat in tune with God's continue to live? It's dead already. It's wasting space. Blow out the flame. Extinguish it. Remove the lampstand from its place. If a church does not fulfill its role, my friends, as the beacon of light shining in a dark place, to call others into the light of the glory of Christ, it has no place among the lampstands. It's a severe threat. 
a great caution to all who think they're doing all right. The Lord Jesus knows. He cares. He cautions. And the church must respond. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from your place. Well, that's the caution. Well, what does Christ promise this church? A covenant, verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What a loving, gracious, powerful Lord we have. The call is to persevere and repent, and to the one who overcomes all these tribulations, and repents and rekindles that first love, the promise is paradise forever. Well, if you're still considering Christianity, you must be thinking twice about following Jesus now. But there is no fine print. So small that you can't see. It's all there. This is what Jesus expects of his church, of his people. And this is what Jesus promises his church, to the individual, to the one who overcomes. Paradise. Forever. It's a covenant. It's a promise worth living worth loving and worth suffering for. Jesus knows. He cares. And he promises life forever in paradise. Maybe some of us need to hear that today so that we will take his word seriously. Well, let's have one more letter together. <coughs> Smyrna. Well, what's the situation there? Well, from verse 9, we see that the present situation is terrible. Not only are they being afflicted, which, could, which means physical persecution, they're undergoing financial hardship. They're suffering afflictions and poverty. Why? Well, verse 9, Jesus knows why. It is the slander of the unbelievers, the troublemakers, reporting Christians to the authorities. And the threat of financial hardship is very real. You see, at the time of the Roman Empire, if you were to engage in work, you had to be part of a guild. If you were a merchant, you had to be part of a merchant's guild. If you were a carpenter, a carpenter's guild. Now the problem was, to be part of this guild, to be officially endorsed by the Roman authorities, you had to swear allegiance to Caesar. Which is not a bad thing, and not so difficult to do, except at the time, there was the cult of emperor worship. They held the emperor Domitian in such high regard that they called him a god. So before you start out your meeting, or trading, or talking business, or before they issue you a trade license, you had to say, oh no, all hail the god and emperor Domitian. You had to offer some incense at his statue. Well, it was a little bit, little bit like our Chinese forefathers, right? You had to belong to a clan association so you get protected. Or some seafarers association if you were a sailor. The same thing happened, you had to go in there and offer a bit of incense at the house gods, at the altars. And now in those days, everyone knew though that it was a highfalutin fiction. Nobody really thought Domitian was a god. Everyone knew he was flesh and blood. He didn't do any miracles. He was not really a son of the gods, but he had a big army. So everyone played along. 
You can hear it in Smyrna. The well-intentioned colleague to the Christian. Look, friend, just buy the incense. I know it's difficult for you, but just buy it and give it to the butler. You don't even have to bow down. The butler will do all that for you. We are the Merchants Guild. We can afford the butler to do it for us. Just do it. It's just a formality. If not, you won't be able to work. I'm saying this because I care. Don't be stupid. Think of your family. Swear an oath to Caesar. If not, how will you feed them? Well, that's the present. That was the present hardship of the Smyrnans. Well, verse 10 tells us that the future doesn't look too bright either. You're about to suffer, I tell you. The devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Some of you might even die. Well, what's going to help young Alexander of Smyrna? A young merchant born into a Christian family who wants to succeed in life He's just got engaged, he might very well say. I can't put all my life at risk. I can't put my fiancé at risk. What about, what about future children? Hardship? Poverty? It's just stupid to put it all at risk. My education? My family? My happiness? Oh yes, my parents say, just like this letter that we are poor, but Jesus says we are rich. Well, I can't see it. I don't have the newest tablet. My parents, they are hardliners. They take the Bible literally. They say we are rich. I can't see it. I can't put my future at risk. This prospect of a lifetime of hardship and the possibility of prison just for this Jesus. Anyway, it's a mere formality. Well, what could possibly convince young Alex that it is worth it? That the risk and prospect of a lifetime of financial hardship, prison, is worth it. What, could, what good reason is there? Well, there must be very strong reasons, my friends, if anybody were to remain faithful in such a real prospect of a lifetime of hardship. Well, there are very strong reasons indeed, and we've seen a little of it already. And I want you to know them, because there may come a time, or there is a time already, when we may have to rely on them as we face these real prospects. Yes, it's no surprise, it's got all to do with Jesus. We know the pattern already. It's got to do with two things about Jesus. His incomparable greatness and his matchless promises. This is what kept them firm in the first century, his incomparable greatness and his matchless promises. And hopefully they'll be real for us. First then, the incomparable greatness of Jesus found in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. It's that vision again of Jesus written for Smyrna, taken from 1 verse 17 and 18. He's the first and the last. He's in control of history and the future. He is alive forevermore. And he has the keys to death and Hades. Now who else could lay claim to that? The Roman executioner? The Roman emperor? This God, the mission? 
the devil, your boss, Jesus has defeated death. He is in control of it. He has gained master over it and he has proved it by being raised to life and is now alive forevermore. He's got the history, he's got the present, he's got the future, and as we like to say, he's got the whole world in his hands. And more, as we shall see. Second reason, the incomparable Jesus makes this matchless promise. Verse 10. Be faithful unto death, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Well, we are right to be skeptical of such big promises, but not when it comes to the incomparable Jesus. And he promises something which nobody else can even hope to deliver on, and is matchless also in what it promises. The crown of life, eternal life in paradise forever. Jesus says this man, I know your poverty, and yet you are rich. Do we believe that? Or do you believe all these lies? It's ironic, isn't it? How what the world views as poverty, the Lord sees as riches. And what the world sees as riches can be spiritual bankruptcy. Because when it really matters, the Lord Jesus promises that you will not be hurt at all by the second death. In verse 11. When that time comes, your riches here on earth, if you had compromised, what would it look like? Death forevermore. But your poverty here on earth, because of your faithfulness, what would it be instead? Life everlasting. What could be better, richer than that? Do not fear what you are about to suffer, says Jesus. He knows it's going to get worse. He knows the devil is at work to put faithful Christians behind bars. To be tested, to be tortured, so that they will renounce Christ as their Lord. Jesus knows what they will go through. And he says, be faithful even to the point of death. Now I know what we are Singaporeans. We are Gasu. And I know what we are thinking. We always want both. We'll say, we just compromise a bit. Lah. Anyway, we can repent later and you forgive us, right? We're pragmatic. But you see, Jesus doesn't say, he doesn't say, okay, be faithful until you cannot take it anymore and then I'll understand. I'll forgive you if you compromise a bit. He doesn't say, I'll swoop down like Superman just at the moment you cannot bear it anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, be faithful, even to the point of death. Friends, it's not just a possibility. It's a reality. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Or do you believe that? No matter how bad it is, Jesus can reverse it. Even death. You will be given the crown of life. Again, you see, Jesus can make this matchless promise because of who he is. He can say that because, well, very simply, he's been there and done that. Verse 8. The words of him who died and came to life again. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus is simply saying, Oh, you'll die alright, but just for a bit. 
Do we believe that? Well, Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, must have read this letter as he suffered under another Roman emperor. At his trial, fierce threats were breathed out by the proconsul. We are going to kill you unless you revile Christ and swear allegiance to Caesar as Lord. Polycarp replies, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. In fact, you need to know him. Appoint a time and I shall tell you the gospel. You want me to revile Christ? How can I? How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Now, whenever you get a response like that, you raise the stakes, right? You turn up the incentives. You turn up the heat. It's like your workplace, right? The firm has decided that it shall be modern and harmonious and become a secular workplace. So secular that you are not to be obviously Christian, although you are. You are told to leave your Christianity at home or on the bus on the way there. Just don't talk about Christ. Don't even say grace before meals. It might offend your colleagues. And if you're obviously Christian in your work ethics and wouldn't lie or cook the books or cut corners, well then you don't fit in with the firm culture. In fact, you watch out next time. You won't help us. You want to sabo us. We won't help you next time you need help. And watch your back. Or your boss who says, if you even try to evangelize your colleagues, well, it won't be good for your promotion. Your CEP, current estimated potential, will drop. And that is still no effect. The incentives go up. Look, if you still carry on like that, we'll have to think seriously about your position where we next cut headcount. Times are bad, you know. Well, in Polycarp's case, it was more than headcount, it was his head at stake. The proconsul says to Polycarp, as he's tried in the stadium in Smyrna, I have wild beasts. And Polycarp says, Call them. What are they? compared to the torment of hell from which Christ has saved me. The proconsul says, I can burn you. You have a fire that burns for a while, says Polycarp, and then is extinguished. And yet I shall be delivered from the fire that burns forever. You see, it's very difficult to scare someone who has an answer to death, because the first and final threat, isn't it? I'll kill you. And Polycarp saying, Okay. Now, I don't mean to be flippant about it. this persecution is really horrible. But if the promise is real to you, you can say, Okay. Because you know how great this promise is. And you know who has made the promise. And that he can deliver. Be faithful even to the point of that. And I will give you the crown of life. Well, as we sit here this morning, do we trust these words? Well, I must say it's very unlikely for any Christian in Singapore for you sitting here to be tested like that with the threat of death. We don't need to, right? Just turn off the icon is enough already. But if it does happen, what will you do? Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life, says Jesus. He knows. He promises. He can.
So if you're like young Alex, or suffering at the workplace, or facing death itself, be faithful, press on, keep going. Well, where does all that leave us here at BTPC? These two letters are from the risen Lord Jesus who walks among the churches. Each of them is addressed to a specific church. And yet it is what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches, all of us. And I've left verse 7 11 out. One final word from Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So imagine as a letter comes in the mailbox. It's got BTPC, 19F Charlton Lane. And it's opened up. What would you expect the Lord Jesus to say to us? When it's open, it will comfort some of us. Some of us sitting here need to hear just what we've read. We need to know that Jesus knows our deeds, our toil, our continued stand against heresy, our suffering at the the workplace for his name's sake. And we are to be faithful, press on and keep going. And some of us need to hear that he cares, that he knows our compromises, that we've abandoned our first love. I don't know, I wasn't here when this church was started. I don't know when you became a Christian. We need to ask you, ask the elders, what was it like back then? When you ran evangelistic meetings, did nobody come? Was it because nobody came because nobody asked? For fear of being marginalized? For being called a freak? For fear of losing church property? For fear of death? Or simply because we do not care, we do not love? Well, if that's the case, then we're in a dangerous place. We need to repent and do the things we did at first. Why don't we pray? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. A moment now just to reflect and respond to what you've heard from Jesus. To him who sits on the throne, Lord, please hear our prayers. For Jesus' sake, Amen.